0: The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. We try to keep the stories alive that are good and that are positive, that help keep our people's memory strong. But um, we don't really want to poke a stick at that which hurts most, because it still hurts. The loss is still very much painful.
1: Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, indigenous voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, executive director of Confluence. Story gathering has two meanings. We gather together and we gather stories. In this case, stories from a Native perspective. In this episode, we're going to hear from one of the best storytellers I know. Bobby Connor is executive director of the Tomaslikt Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon. It's part of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Bobby was one of several Native thinkers and leaders who spoke at a confluence story gathering at Lewis-Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. She's going to introduce herself, and she's going to share reflections on the subject of Celilo Falls. The grand and historic series of waterfalls in the Columbia River was flooded by the Dalles Dam in 1957. It was a traumatic loss for tribes along the river that relied on the falls as one of the greatest fisheries in North America. It was also a spiritual and cultural stronghold. Here's Bobby.
0: My name is uh, Bobby Connor in English, and uh, my Indian name is Sasawipum. And my ancestry is uh, Nespers um, from the Wallawa Band as well as Snake River Nespers, Umatilla and Cayuse, and uh, Scots Irish. The last name Connor has been our name since at least the 1830s when a mountain man married a Nespers woman. My grandmother's side is, is the big river side, the main stem side. So my great-grandmother, Wayashish, came from Wayam. And my connection to Salilo is through many branches of the family at many generations, but most directly from Wayashish. For our elders and our ancestors, it's a very real place who experienced the mist and the roar and the fishing and the trading and everything that went on there. For the people who were born at the end of the baby boom generation who heard our grandparents and parents talk about their experiences there, it's real, but we don't know it in person. For the rest of the generations after us, it's a myth, it's a legend. It's not a reality because they've never heard the roar, felt the mist, experienced the fishing, experienced the family, extended family gathering, sharing scaffolds, and so... To keep that memory alive is important, but it's also important to kind of let some of those memories rest because it's hurtful. It's painful. So we keep we try to keep the stories alive that are good and that are positive, that help keep our people memory strong, but um we don't really want to poke a stick at that which that which hurts most because it still hurts. The loss is still very much painful and ever-present. I'm going to tell a little story that might seem off-color and irreverent, but I was in North Dakota when 9-11 hit. And for those of you who don't know, Garrison Dam did the same thing that the Dalles Dam did. So the Missouri River was treated the same way as the Columbia River. And the Mandan Gardens were all flooded like our scaffolds and fishing sites. And... Our flights didn't go out, so we ended up at the dinner that night, mom and I. And um, we were sitting with a table of elders from the Mandan and Hidatsa peoples. And they were giggling and carrying on. And, and it was a really tough day for everybody across the continent. But they were kind of tittering. And we asked what they were talking about. And they, because they had big smiles on their face, they, they, they were laughing at the governor. He was worried that the terrorists were going to bomb Garrison Dam, and that was <laughs> that was tickling their souls. <laughs> it was not a bad thought, you know, that that dam that they might get their villages back, that they might get their gardens back. That that, as painful as that day was, there was a moment of glee in there because the governor was worried about a dam. They found great joy in that. I think that way about a lot of. Uh, the painful things in our history we find some moment of glee or joy there so we can keep going so we can keep going forward and hang on to what's positive because there's been so much loss Almost all of the stories we're told as children in our culture have a lesson in them, whether we get it the first time or the hundredth time we hear the story. But there's meaning and there's learning. But I I think about the oral histories that pioneers probably didn't necessarily believe, and those are really instructive. So when our elders talked about being able to cross the Columbia River on the backs of fish, we're not talking about Jesus walking on water. We're talking about the fact that in October, when the river's low, before dams were built, and the creamers, the spawning fish, come back up, and the river is so thick with fish, there's more fish than water. And Lewis and Clark didn't understand that. They thought they were sick, that they were poisoned, that there was something wrong with them because they didn't understand the anadromous cycle. It's really important to remember that to us, those oral histories about being able to walk across the river on the backs of fish is a fact. It's not a story, it's a fact. And when we think about that, and then people at OSU independently decide to take the Lewis and Clark journals and extrapolate the data in the journals and come up with the conclusion that maybe we were right That the base level, the baseline for fish in the Columbia River is actually 15 to 21 million fish a year, not one and a half to five million, which is what most of the fisheries departments of the three states in the Northwest would have us believe. 15 to 21 million fish a year. That's crossing the river on the backs of fish. It's not a story, it's not oral history, it's a fact to us. And when somebody scientifically corroborates that, that's lovely. That's lovely. But it gives us, as the generation at the fulcrum, the challenge, as has been described, to restore that fishery, which means, whether people want to talk about it or not, dams may not be forever. Then We may not see them leave in my lifetime, but they're not... Cement is not made to last forever, rebar or not. And so I think it's important for us, we're reminded of the coyote story and the dam on the Columbia River and what happened then. And we have so many stories that are instructive to us that tell us as when we're the young people in the culture coming along, there's work for you to do. And here's another story that gives you another idea of some work for you to do, whether it's restoring a species, whether it's working on fish passage, whether it's working on um, uh, habitat projects or working on language of, of the river. Whatever that is, there's an opportunity, I think, from these stories for us to get our life's work laid out for us, to get the idea that there's more for us to do on behalf of not only our old people and our culture, but our tomorrow. I think those stories really tell us, they kind of set the bar for how we serve our community. And I I really think that a lot of these things that we talk about when we talk about stories, it's really important to understand that that really is um, a fabric, a structure in our culture. Um, Those stories are not only inspirational and factual, but those stories are the foundation of what we're supposed to know to carry ourselves forward. And that you know that the only that then gives us the need to make sure the stories go forward, to make sure the stories aren't forgotten, and to make sure that we remember the integrity that our elders had when they told those stories, whether the white western scientists understood or believed them or not. It didn't change the content of their stories. They stuck to their guns. And eventually, science will catch up with them. And we'll have to wait.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Bobby Connor, Executive Director of the Tumust select Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon, talking about Celilo Falls. She was speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Lewiston, Idaho. In the second part of the evening, the stories turned to tribal lifeways, and Bobby shared memories of learning about a beautiful life from her grandmother. Again, here's Bobby.
0: When we talk about lifeways, it's an enormous undertaking just to begin to share sort of the tenets of the culture that has sustained our people for more than 10,000 years. When my mother was talking about the Beautiful life our, our people lived. It was rigorous. It was hard. It was not easy. But her favorite memories were being a child in the mountains in the summer before air conditioning with her and her sister and her brother, the two young, one two years younger and one two years older, barefoot in a gingham dress, three of them on a horse being sent to the bottom of the canyon to haul water back to the top. And some of them were closed containers and some of them were open buckets. So it kept the kids busy all day. Because <laughs> the buckets may have started out full at the bottom, but I'm sure they weren't full at the top. But that living in the mountains in the summertime that her mother and her aunt and all of her ancestors before had lived was a remnant of the life that they lived in my grandmother's time, and my grandfather's time was a little bit different, but my grandmother was still traveling in the seasonal life way, leaving in the spring, when the snow had melted enough in the mountains, and they would leave the mouth of the Umatilla River or the high point above it where Echo is, and they would make their way south, and it they would take a journey of a thousand miles with um, the family all on horseback. When they got into the Snake River country in the shale, uh, the woman I'm named after made rawhide... Pad covers for the dogs, like moccasins, to um, be able to travel on foot. The woman I'm named after used to talk to the snakes on the trail, so they, you know, she'd warn them that soldiers or pigs were coming and they'd be trampled, and she'd tell them to get out of the way, and they wouldn't bother the snakes, and the snakes wouldn't bother them, and they would make their way a thousand miles down, and they'd go into Catherine Creek in the Minam country to the Snake River and follow the Snake, and in September when Roundup, the Pendleton Roundup first started, her family wasn't there because they were in the Weezer Payette area fishing for salmon because salmon were still abundant there. They're not anymore. And so they would make their way back to the Snake River and follow it all the way back around to the Tri-Cities and come home. And they would come home with A bad year was a dozen pack horses full of food, and a good year was 21 pack horses full of food. And they were doing that, gathering food, from spring until October, when they'd come home to to winter villages. And so for my sister, who's here with me, Dana, um, we grew up with Grandma, and, you know, for me, I had the best... Goals as a kid. My grandmother had a cat that rode in a saddlebag. Our grandmother had a cat that rode in a saddlebag around (laughs) the horn on her horse on the seasonal round. For me, that was like, wow. I mean, I want a cat that rides a horse. I mean, so as a kid, they were the most uh, vivid depictions of a life that was beautiful the cat's name was Muzzer, and it also rode the um Victrola that played Caruso on our great grandmother's wind-up uh, machine so it it was very it was fanciful in some respects because listening to her talk about how they made camp how that she would dig a pit around the the teepee and they would put. She would put bear grease on. She braided this. My great aunt, great great aunt, braided horsehair ropes that were very coarse and spindly, purposefully, and put bear grease on them around them, and that would be in the tent so that nothing would come in the tent and bother them. And they all the all the things that they did as ways of going. When our grandmother was a child, those stories are the best um, because not just because they're not something I know personally. I didn't live them but because they remind us of a time when our knowledge of this landscape over thousands of miles was so intimate that we knew how to live in those places and get along with the rattlesnakes and get along with everything else that lived there in order to gather food and to take care of sort of one another through that process. um, For me, that is really sort of the like, that's sort of the bar. That's where the standard is set. I mean, whoa, you know. Um, it's like if I had that kind of life, you know, my cats, my dogs, my whole family on horseback for, you know, six six or eight months out of the year, that's a dream. That's heaven. So I think of that and think to remind, it reminds me of lots of things in my family that are important to me, not only my family and our life ways and our foods, But how we took care of other things, the cat, the dog, I mean, for me, that that was just phenomenal, the care that was given to everything that traveled and everything, every place we traveled through, every place we camped. And she would talk about the system of reciprocity where it made no sense to carry heavy tools. You fill your saddlebags with rocks, that's insane. So all those tools were there when you got to the place you needed them And no one would break them or vandalize or steal them. They would be where you needed them, when you needed them, and you'd come back and they'd be there next year. And to live in a place where that kind of honor and integrity and uh, systematic reciprocity was sort of the rule of the road, that's heaven. That's really heaven to me.
1: That was Bobby Connor. Executive Director of the Temust Slick Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon, speaking at a confluence story gathering in Lewiston, Idaho. To learn more about Bobby Connor and her work, go to TMustSlict.org. I'll spell that. T-A-M-A-S-T-S-L-I-K-T dot org. It means interpreting our own story. A special thanks to our host for the Lewiston Confluence Story Gathering, the Center for Arts and History at Lewis-Clark State College. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit us at confluenceproject.org or find us wherever you get your podcasts.